I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. In 2008, I gave up my 20-year career as a fashion buyer because I was disillusioned with how much product was being sourced overseas and I set out to uncover some of the amazing businesses that were still making in Britain. Since founding Make It British, I've discovered that there is not only still tons of manufacturing taking place in the UK, but that it's a thriving industry. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be telling the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and manufacturers and offering advice to those that want to make in the UK. So with no further ado, let's get on with the show. and welcome to episode six of the Make It British podcast. In this episode, I interview Keith Hanshaw of the Leather Satchel Company. It's a fascinating interview where Keith tells me all about how his family business started, why craftsmanship is at the heart of everything that his business does, how the business survived the downturn in UK manufacturing in the 90s, and what was the thing that turned it all around. I'll give you a clue. It's got something to do with a children's book. He also tells me why value is much more important than price. It's a fantastic interview. I hope you enjoy it. I'll hand you over to Keith. So hello, Keith. Thank you very much for joining me today. Good morning. Hope you're well. I'm very well, thank you. So um, I wanted to start off today by just asking a little bit about your your business. And I know it's a family business with a great history. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that family history and the company story? Yeah, sure. So um, my family got into leather work originally from my granddad, um, who was taught basic equipment repair during the Second World War. Um, and basically, he after the war, he became a hobbycraft leather worker. And he taught that to my, my uncles. So my uncle Stephen picked up leather craft as a hobby um, in kind of like the mid fifties and then took that forward and then had an opportunity to kind of take that into a professional realm. Um, So originally he was just doing the kind of what we'd call pop-up shops nowadays. So Mm -hmm. he was doing like street stores and events and fairs, things like that. And and basically a headmaster came along and saw one of the – the bags, the school satchels that he'd made and was struggling to find a really quality bag. He, he, at the time, he didn't actually know. My uncle Stephen didn't know the chap was a headmaster and he picked up this bag off his, his little display stand and was inspecting it. Like, And Stephen was like, Stephen was a young lad. Stephen was like 19 at the time. But he'd been doing leather work for about five, six years. So he was, he was good at his trade. Um. But it was still a hobby craft. He was, he was, he was actually working, um, basically making most of his money doing uh, leather work as a hobby and, and spending a lot of time traveling and that. So this, this headmaster looked at the bag and was like, hmm. And Stephen's like, what, what? you know, it's everything all right, sir. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you make this? And then Stephen thinks like, I've done something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he's like, "Uh, uh, yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, it's everything all right? No, no. And he's tugging at it and he's pulling it and he's looking at it. And Stephen, Stephen, I remember I I spoke to Stephen a couple of years ago about this event and he said, you know, I thought 
I thought the design, like the classic satchel, I didn't know at the time it had been around for like 400 years and um, that it was, you know, a public domain design. And he thought he, it was like a copyrighted design and he thought he was in trouble, you know, because this, yeah. this chap was a headmaster, he had an air of authority about him. And he's like, oh, okay. And he's like, he keeps looking at it, testing it and all that kind of stuff. So then he's, he's basically, he's going, well, is everything okay? And he says, yeah, everything's fine. He says, well, would you like to buy it? And he says, no, I'd like to buy 200 of them. Brilliant. And then a, a conversation starts where it's like, can you handle that? And he's like, and he's, he's on his own. He's a hobby crafter. And he's like, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> Typical scale. Yeah, we could do that. Not a problem. <laughs> and then but, work out how to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then he gets his brothers involved, you know. So there's like, he's got Uncle Steve's one of seven, you know. So it's kind of like, it really, it, it takes the business from a family hobby. And, and, a, and a skill that's been in the family, but into the professional realms then. And it's like, okay, how do we do this? And it gets a workshop and it grows from there. And it stays like that for, you know, a long, long time um, until like the early, late 70s, early 80s. And then people stop buying satchels. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like China opens up and China learns to make some PU bags, classic kind of a, you know, the, the typical sports bag. And it's kind of, they become a, into the UK at a very, very good price, at like, you know, £40 or something, which leather satchels have always been expensive products. Mm. And so the market just dies for the satchel industry completely. And then, so my family then goes back to, we, we keep on making satchels, but it's very small numbers. And it's the likes of, like, we still have a contract with Eaton College and Blackwell's Bookshops on all the university campuses and John Smith's uh, University Outfitters and all them kind of things. But the, the smaller numbers, you know, it's not every kid in school has a yeah. bag. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's very small numbers. So we diversify and go back and start making all the stuff that Uncle Stephen always made, which was like everything you can think of that was made of leather belts and wallets and hair clips and mirrors and shoes yep. and clogs yeah. you can imagine you know but i presume the seven children you're talking about your your father was one of those or no, it's my it's, it's my mum so stephen's my mum's brother and was she involved in the business as well oh, in the 70s? yeah so every, everyone in the family's cut the teeth in the leather satchel company kind of leather working business you know so it, it's kind of everyone it's what we do it's like you get to a certain age it's like <laughs> saturday saturday job or holidays yeah. you're not you're not sitting around doing nothing go come and, and work, work in the workshop come and earn some money you know yeah. and i, I think it, it, it instills a really good work ethic in, in in the younger generations of the family as well they still do that today you know and we're lucky we're really fortunate we've got a massive family and everyone works you know, not everyone works in the in the family business, but we're really fortunate. Everyone works, and I think part of that can be attributed to you know starting work at a really young young age and and saying okay, and let's let's instill you work hard, you get a reward for that, and you go out and you know that's yeah. that's the way it is. Yeah. So, how old were you when you first started uh, working there? You mentioned so, yeah. So I was fourteen. So I started working. So I did Saturday job. 
and then I did holidays, you know, uh, so summer holidays, uh, Christmas holidays. And, and what and would I they get you to do when you went Every, into that age? Everything. Apart Quick from make tea and clean up, which is typical for like the younger people because you know, it's like, we're not very skilled when we start at that age. So it's like, what can you do? It's like, so obviously you're helping them do their job better. Yeah. So a lot of it is just, it's, it's, it's labor. It's like, I right, put these over there, sort that, but then you get little jobs as well. And as you start off, you start do this. And then as you do a job, they get, they, you know, that my uncles would earn more confidence in your ability and they give you more and more jobs. You know, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. You know, my mum and dad, they kind of wanted me to leave school and go to college and university and do fine arts. And I always had a different plan in mind. You know, I was leaving, I left school at 16 and I started working with my uncles, but you know, I so idolized what, my uncles, you know. So what was it you loved about it so much then that you think, didn't want to go to college and you preferred to work doing my Yeah. I th- I th- I've thought about this a lot. It's very interesting. I think, you know, because when you say, oh, it's a production job, like most people think of factory work mm-hmm. as not very exciting and interesting. And I think, well, I think when you do factory work, that's very... Um, Repetitive, I suppose. Yeah, and broken down. And especially mm. the work that can possibly, in the very short future, be automated because it's a, it's, it's a little bit of AI bots can probably pick up on that and do that yeah. work. But when you're doing the work where you're actually producing something from start to finish, you're taking a hide of leather and you're, then you're turning that into a bag. You're not just doing one part of that job or you're making a belt or you're making a wallet or whatever it is that there's a, there's, there's a different process that goes on. First of all, there's a lot more intelligence in the whole design. Yeah. The, yeah. the surprise, something, when you make that, something else goes into the product rather than just labor and, and design knowledge, you know? There's, a, there's part of the maker's kind of, their spirit is instilled in the product. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, it's, uh, it's, and, and there's a pride that goes with that. You know, you made this, you want it to be the best that you can do. And, and that's something different. That's, that's not, for me, that's not production. That's craft. Yeah. And it's this, it's this balance between art and industry. You know, it's, it's all, you know, I think we look at where we are now and, and where we were in the past. And I think there was, there was, it, there was there's at least a perception that there was a lot more artisans in the past. I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't think it is. But I think... Artisans nowadays have more time struggling amongst the noise in the commercial world to get their products to market. So they struggle a lot more. Do you think so? I think there's a return to craftsmanship, though. I think people like you who are putting craftsmanship at the front of everything they do, that's definitely returning. And there's more of an interest because people don't want mass-produced products. I think think you're dead right. I think... think your, your insight on that is spot on. We're seeing, we're seeing a lot more interest in ours, but it, again, it's just getting out. When you're in a very crowded space, it's, there is a lot of interest. When you can appear in front, like we do a lot of pop-ups and stuff like that, and we'll appear around the country or we'll have this here and we'll do an event there. And when people see it, they're absolutely amazed at what we do. I mean, we try and do like live making and crafting in front mm-hmm. of people and show people how things are made. That's, that's what my uncle Steve used to do. He used to, when he was on the street, uh, when he was at a market, he'd be making stuff in front of people. And, um, you know, and, and then people would see it, and he wouldn't have to explain what he was doing. 
people can see it and go, you know, you don't have to say, oh, these are made in Liverpool. People can see they're made in Liverpool. Exactly. People can see, see the handmade, you mm. know, and that, that's the difference. It's like that craft. But yeah, you are dead right. The people, once, when you can actually get through to people, people really, really connect with us. Like mm. we don't do any marketing apart from online. So mm. we do a bit of social media and all that is, is we take pictures of our products and we put them online and show people what we do, or we take pictures of our workshop and show people what we're making. And, and that's it. That's all we do. We let the product talk for itself. Yeah. I mean, I can hear the workshop in the background at the moment. Is it, are you in the same workshop that you were in or that your uncle Steve was in when he first started out? No, no, no. We've moved since then. So what, um, yeah, I, I am supposed to be in a quiet room. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love the sound hear, of the making hear, of the workshop. Hear, yeah, you can hear people walking around and things, but yeah, it's okay. Um, um, so, so yeah, so so we started out originally. So when Steve started the business, there was when he started Levercraft, it was a hobby craft, and he was based in in Old Swan in Liverpool. So he had a workshop in my nan's backyard, which used to be. An old shed and an outhouse. <laughs> and it's still there today. That that workshop is still there. We don't use it. It's kind of, it's all a bit dusty in that now, but it's still there. <laughs> the tools aren't there, but you can see the old benches and things, and which is really nice. When the business went from kind of street stall to we need to make 200 satchels, then there was, a, there was a workshop set up at that point. So Uncle Steve, basically, he managed to negotiate with Coley Court. Coley Court was the school in London that, that gave us that first letter of intent. So obviously, he didn't buy 200 satchels there. A letter was correspondence sent back and forward. And Coley Court sent Uncle Steve uh, a letter of intent saying, if you can get this business up, da, 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 we're willing to pay 30% of the money uh, um, to help you get started, um, you do a part delivery, and um, then we'll give you this, and then we'll on, on final delivery we'll pay you that as well. So Steve looked at that and he thought, "This isn't enough money to get me started." Oh <laughs> <laughs> What did he do? Yeah. So so he then he then got on the phone and started phoning up all of the schools and saying, "Hey, this is is that, is that the blue gate? Is this here? Is that them?" And then he he bait and we. And he has, he says, he spent ages, like the amount of nose he had, because he was a young man. He's nineteen, twenty. Yeah. You know, he's left, he left school at fifteen, no qualifications to do leather work as a hobby. You know, it's like what we'd call kind of like these little craft and Etsy businesses that we mm. see now. You know, it's it, it's that kind of thing. But he made a living from it. He made more than he, you know. You speak to what was then the, you know, the kind of careers advisor and they're saying, well, what do you want to do, Steve? Where do, what, you know, and he's making leather goods already for family and friends and making good money from it. And because he's a kid, people are supporting him. They're going, oh, little Stevie made me this. And, oh, that's really great. He made you, can you, Stevie, can you make me a belt? Yeah, I can do that for you. So he's obviously making good money. And then the careers advisor says, you know, what do you want to do when you leave school? Uh, which factory do you want to go and work in? Because that's the opportunities for him in Liverpool mm. in the 1960s, you know. And he's like, yeah, how's that work? And it's like 40 hours a week. You do that for 40 years, you get 40 bob, and you retire on 40% <laughs> of your pay. And he's like, yeah, I ain't doing that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that's when he, he gets more into leather work, you know, and, and that, that's where it starts. 
So are you still in the second workshop that he had? In, or have you yes, moved on? we are. No, no. So that's where we are. So we're in. So he went from the, well, it's actually the third, if you'd like, the third, the second professional one. The first one, he couldn't even work in himself when he got busy. He used to work on the street because he had more room because it was so small. You get a hide of leather in, and he said he couldn't cut it in the, in the shed. So he'd take it out onto the pavement outside, cut it down into workable pieces. But that's where the, the, the insight for him working in front of people came from. Because people had walked past and asked what he was doing. And mm. they go, what are you doing? I'm making a belt, aren't I? Oh, can you make me one? And that conversation gets started. So that's where that stems from, us making in front of people. Mm. And you've continued. And that tradition going, yeah. Yeah, and I love the fact that you've continued that now and that you've you've got a lot of that on your, in your website, haven't you, showing you yeah. as the craftsman. Yeah. So is Uncle Steve still with the business? He is, yeah. He's semi-retired now. So he's handed so over he, to you. Yeah, I mean, he, he can't keep his fingers out, you see. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he can't. He's got passion by the sound of things. He has, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he loves to work. He, he's, he's, he's a great, he's a smiley, happy chap, you know. He's really fun to be around. Um, and he loves to work. And he's a great craftsman, you know. He's been doing his trade for... 50 60 years yeah. you know it's, it's like it's a long time you know so um so how is your business Keith how is it obviously in the 90s um and after that there was a decline in interest in British made goods and as you said earlier everyone went over to China for cheap mass-produced products why do you think that the Hanshaw family business the leather satchel company has managed to sustain itself and sustain itself well it's really interesting. I think, so firstly, you have to understand the struggles we went through. Mm-hmm. So the Hanshaw family business, we are family, and that, that we couldn't move production to China. We'd, you know, so, so we had to compete with the Chinese. So we just got very, very efficient at making things, which sometimes that might mean, right, we're not going to glue a bag together before we stitch it. Mm-hmm. We're just going to stitch it. And, and, and that increases the skill level, but it also saves costs. So you become very, very skillful at what you do. Yeah. But, that, but then you also then, it becomes really, really hard. So that I can remember there's times when, like, I haven't been paid for six months. Mm, really and hard. I, yeah. I, I was working pot wash in a restaurant of a night on a Wednesday, a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to pay me bills. Gosh, so the, was that in the 90s? Yeah, yeah. So then I could go back and then work in the day at, at the, 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 the family business doing leather work. Doing what you loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's kind of like there's something about like most people would have given up. Mm. This isn't working, you know, and it's like so and the family business just kept going. And it was like it, it was getting harder and harder. And, you know, no matter how how hard we tried it was impossible to compete with china it's just impossible you know certainly on on when you're looking at price and that's where we were trying to compete you know the quality was always good but we were trying to compete with price because that's what drives the economy go on you had a question no i was just saying you you can't compete with price can you no no differentiate differentiate so what was the turning point do you think so so I, i left i left I said to my uncle, I said, listen, you know, there's my four uncles and a, a chap with us called Kevin McGuinness who's still with us today. He's been with us since, you know, for 40, 50 years. 
and they all had families and you know and it's like i'm like a youngster and there's just like five or six of us left and i'm like listen guys you don't have just because i'm family doesn't mean you can't say keith we've got no work for you i'm yeah. happy to go you know and it's like it, it's understanding you know that i i, I then got a, a chance to pursue the artistic side of where I am because I was, you know, there was always this dream to go to art college and uni. So I got into like digital art and graphic design and then ended up doing branding and digital branding and online marketing and which gave me a whole new kind of set of weaponry for, for a business. So then I was able to return in kind of the, the early noughties and look at it and go, well, We've got tons of skills now. We can do yeah. this. And we need to set up websites and we need to do this and we need to do that. And so it, it's interesting. It, get, it, it brought us back. And, but that on its own wasn't enough. And what really changed the industry was Harry Potter. Yeah, of course. Yeah. How, it, yeah. The satchel. It, it was just mental. It's this old harping back to this old, like 60s, 50s, 60s school days. And they were the bags that were worn back then. And everyone wanted them. You know, and you were just the originators. Like, yeah, well, well, I wouldn't say we're the original because the design goes back to fourteen hundred Shakespearean times. You know, um, but but certainly we, we were the last surviving satchel maker in England at that time. We were the only people left making them. You know, and then Harry Potter came along, and there's this massive resurgence. And I think in the UK, there's probably about probably twelve to fifteen satchel makers in the UK now, which is it's really great because there's an industry again. Yeah, you know, it's not just some crazy guy in Liverpool doing something. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one, one of the ways that you distinguish yourself, and obviously it comes from your training in sort of digital and and design and branding, is that you do um, bespoke, more custom orders, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So we're probably out of the big, the larger, more well-known companies that that still make satchels. We're the only company that does bespoke. Mm. So you can come to us and say, listen, I want a 14-inch bag, but the one on the website has a single pocket. I'd like two. I'd like a, a compartment in the middle, handle on the top. I'd like the straps to be interchangeable with backpack straps. And I'd like, you know, wh whatever you want, I'd like a little key clip on the side. And we get all kinds of things asked. And then people come to us and we make it for them. You so know, how, how do you balance that? Doing something bespoke compared to making it viable and making it commercial. Because as you said before, the reason that things work well for you is because you managed to automate things and cut things out of the production cycle. By doing something bespoke, you're actually making your production much more complex, aren't you? How do you yeah, make that so, 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 so we, we no longer have like, so we don't have a production line. Right. it doesn't exist in our business we have corrals what we call little teams of people mm -hmm. who are who work on projects so it's kind of like this this, this fundamentally what we do is we have areas in our workshop that are set up this is a cutting area this is this is for detail stitching this is for hardware fit that is for that and then the craftsmen if they're able to they 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 try and complete that whole product if they're not they get someone else to do the bit they're not skilled to do yet but we try and teach them the goal for us is to create craft people who can create a product from start to finish because that's where pride comes into the work yeah that's, that's why i think there's there's a bit of magic in our products and people see that 
you know, people see see the, you know, the uniqueness in what we do. You know, you look at, you know, you look at the reviews on Trustpilot, and we're at like nine point eight, nine point nine consistently. You know, people just love what we do. And my husband's got one of your bags, which yeah, you yeah. custom make. To I can't remember what his specific mm. tricky requirement was, but yeah, you you made it, and it was brilliant. And I think actually, when he had a problem with the strap, I even sent the strap back, and he said, "Oh, no problem. We'll we'll yeah. alter it," which is well, fantastic we, 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 service. Yeah, I mean, we that's what we do. We 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 love the products. You know, it's kind of like a bit of us goes into it, and we love to get them. We get we give a five year guarantee on on what we do. And then after that, we give a lifetime repair service, you know. So it's kind of like we want we don't want these products ending up in landfill. And, mm. and I love them when they get. I love to see so all do that. I. Come back. Yeah, they come back. They're all battered and worn. And then you give them a bit of love and care, and it's like they don't look new. They just look spruced up, but they look better than they do new, you know. And it's just like exactly. And I think that's so important there. these days. Yeah. People say, "Oh, it's more expensive to buy something made in the UK," but if you're buying something that lasts so long, it's got a five-year guarantee. You know, you know the maker; they'll repair it for you. Like it's not going into landfill. It's it's so important. So where we compete now is we've changed our business. We don't compete on price. We compete on we we compete on value, and that's what we say. So we we I honestly believe our company is the best value offering in the world. You know, I look at it and I I, I sit there and I think I look at products coming from Asia being brought in, and I look at high end products being made in the UK, and we sit in this affordable luxury space with a product that is incredibly durable at a very competitive price. And I look at it and I go, no one can beat that for value. For value for money, that's it. It's world-class. Yeah. You know and you, but by not spending huge amounts of money on PR, marketing, fancy shops, but by selling direct to the consumer through pop-ups and your website, yeah. cut out that middleman, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So most of our, our core business it's direct to consumer and that's what keeps us afloat. Mm. So we do do occasional deals with a wholesale level, but Kate, there's no money in it for us. Yeah. You know, we do stuff with like ASOS on, online and we're literally, we're, we're giving them to them at cost and they're cutting their margins down massively than what they would normally do just to be able to offer these products. Now ASOS help us a lot in getting our product to market. You know, they're, they're normally asking for like, three, four times markup and we're going, listen, we can't do that with you. Mm. You need to really look at what we're doing. If you want to support a British made company, you need to be looking at less than, you know, less than what would traditionally, you know, most shops are looking for 40% plus markup and we're going, listen, you can't do that. Not with British made. You're going to have to look at it as like, take a short run. You'll have no stock left over. Yeah, exactly. It'll sell, you know, and that's the way you look at it, you know. And, yeah. and they'd like that and it works for them, you know, uh, but we, we make nothing from it, but it's marketing for us. It gets product in, into people's hands and then they're like, oh, I bought this bag off ASOS, but then they'll contact us and buy directly from us. Yeah, that from, makes sense. You know what I mean? And that, so, that's where our business comes from. So where can people find you, Keith, if they want to buy one of your fantastic leather satchels? Yeah. Um, so where's the best place to find we, you? We, we do pop-ups and the best way to find out about the pop-ups is get on the newsletter. So mm-hmm. we've got a website and then they can sign up to the newsletter. We have a, you can, people are welcome to come to our workshop in Heighton, in Liverpool. Oh, great. So it's open doors on the workshop, is it? Yeah. So there's a little showroom there. There's staff there to help and they can come in and they can look at stuff. They can have a look around the workshop that, you know, we're, we're, we're very, very transparent with what we do. 
you know we also have um we have a a little workshop currently in the albert dock as well in liverpool with in the center so we have a uh we're in the middle of developing that but we're working with albert dock and they love what we do and they've been very very generous in giving us a space down there to to, to show off what we do and we have a little shop there with a ton of products in so at the workshop generally there's no products for people to buy they can come in look at all the bags look at the colors look at the skin for leather and they can see other people's orders being made but obviously they're all to go out because we don't keep stock of bags we make on demand um because everything's bespoke yeah but the shop has stock in it which people can buy and take away so that's the difference at the albert dock and we do a bit of make there and personalization we do some customizations while people wait as well which is nice for them um and then online as well online you know yeah okay well i'll put all the links i'll get the links for you for the show notes for this podcast for for your website and for the newsletter so people can sign up and the address so they can go and visit your workshop you'll probably be inundated now (laughs) i hope so (laughs) thank you so much it's such a fascinating story keith i knew about your business but i didn't know about uncle steve and uh, i'd love to meet him one day great guy yeah thanks for inviting me kate it's It's a pleasure thank you keith take care bye-bye bye listening to this episode of the make it british podcast if you're interested in discovering uk manufacturers within the fashion textiles and homeware sector you should definitely come to our yearly trade show make it british live the next event is taking place on the 29th and 30th of may 2019 at the business design center in london There'll be over 200 manufacturers, inspiring talks, just like those you're listening to on this podcast, and interactive workshops. It's the perfect place to network with others that want to see UK manufacturing thrive again. To register to attend, go to makeitbritishlive.com forward slash register. Or if you're a British-made manufacturer or brand and you want to find out how your business can benefit from being involved in the show visit makeitbritishlive.com forward slash exhibit, fill out a short questionnaire and we'll get straight back to you. If you want to reach out to me personally, and I'd love to hear from you, the best place to do that is probably via LinkedIn. Just look up Kate Hills and you'll find me. You can also find me on Twitter at Make It British or on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Make It British. I go live on the Make It British Facebook page every Thursday at 1pm. Do pop on over and say hello and say you heard me on the podcast. To make sure you never miss out on an episode of this podcast, remember to just subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher or whichever is your preferred podcast app. I'd be so happy as well if you left me a little review on iTunes. The more reviews I receive, the more people would discover this podcast and the more we can spread the word about making in the UK. To read the show notes for this episode, go to makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you'll find links to any of the brands or manufacturers mentioned on the show. Thanks once again for listening to the Make It British podcast. Bye. Bye.